This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of the New Books Network. I'm Jolie Ho, and you're listening to the Psychology Channel. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Michael Alsi and discuss his latest book, Therapeutic Improvisation, How to Stop Winging It and Own It as a Therapist. Dr. Alsi is joining me today from Terrytown, New York, where he maintains a private practice, and he is also a mental health educator at the Manhattan School of Music. He specializes in the psychology of artists as well as the everyday creativity and professional development of therapists. He has also worked in college counseling at Fordham University and Vassar College and was training coordinator at the Counseling Center at Ramapo College of New Jersey. Something I also wanted to mention is that he's also the winner of the American Psychological Association's 2019 Schillinger Memorial Prize for his essay on the link between jazz and psychoanalysis. In Dr. Elsie's recent book, written for trainee therapists and clinical supervisors, he provides a conceptual and practical framework for therapists to define and develop their therapeutic voice, along with the art of therapeutic improvisation, which we will be discussing today. He draws heavily on examples from literature, music, and movies to open readers up to an entirely new way of viewing the process of therapeutic growth while offering exercises geared towards self-development as a therapist artist, as well as personal process and self-care. Michael, thank you so much for being here with me today. Jolie, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, So I was really drawn to your book as someone who is a trainee psychologist, trainee therapist myself, and also as someone who grew up with music and theater. So I didn't go to music school, as I know many of your clients and patients have, um, but I always grew up with music and I always had this really great opportunity to be part of something bigger, whether that was an orchestra or a chamber group, Um, I play the violin, or a theater production, and over the years, it's turned into something I really treasure and really enjoy. So I was really delighted to come across your book that merges these two disciplines of therapy and art. So the first question I had for you is, 
what inspired you to write this book? I love how you said it. I think what's wonderful about art is that it helps you share your individual voice, but share it in something bigger and for something bigger. And one of the things that I was always struck by as therapists is, is that we're seeing the artfulness of, of psychological life. And, and we ourselves are doing something quite artistic. And yet even when I was talking to artists like musicians or writers, they sometimes think of their psychological life as separate from their artistic creations. And even therapists like Irvin Yalom, who I think is a, a tremendous artist as a writer, as a theorist, and doesn't necessarily think of himself as an artist. And I thought, well, it's so such a shame that we don't, as therapists, think of ourselves as artists, nor do people think as mental health as exercising a certain kind of personal creativity. And so I felt like, wait, we need to we need to talk about this together. And what better place than with those who are developing new in the field? Because we're trying to find our voice as new therapists. And I think our supervisors are sort of like the jazz masters who we're like listening to to try and figure out like what style do I want to take from this? What what style do I want to take from that? And what is my music gonna sound like? To to put it into another kind of metaphor, I think we should all have what's called an Ars Poetica, which is a poem about your process as a poet. And I thought there's something so poetic about being a therapist. And I wanted to talk about it. And at the same time, I wanted to talk about it through the framework of interpersonal neurobiology. So science and art can synergize, which I think is exactly what we do. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think I've heard so many metaphors for therapy like i think i've heard someone compare therapy to chess or therapy to tennis and i think they were trying to get at that back and forth between the therapist and the client but i really think that art and performance as that metaphor is really fitting and one that really resonates with me and i think will also resonate with a lot of other people because of the way almost like something new is created out of that space and out of the time that you share with this other person um, in this relational way. And like you mentioned, this book draws heavily on the idea of improvisation, um, especially the jazz art form. I know you make lots of references to different forms of art. So you have music references, film references, um, little poetry snippets in there as well. Um, And You know, this idea of improvisation, as you suggest in the title of the book, nobody likes that feeling of winging it, even though in some ways that's what improvisation is. And I'm curious where the term therapeutic improvisation comes from and what that means to you. Yeah, I realize that in a lot of ways, especially as, you know, as a beginning therapist, you're trying to figure out like what what you need to say next or what you want to do next or what best to take in. And I think, I think it's always challenging because the chords are always changing in the person's music or the story is shifting from this dimension of the character to another. And so there's a lot to keep up with in sessions. And to me, it reminds me a lot of jazz because jazz songs can move really quickly and you're expected to figure out how to solo on the changes. And so I thought maybe it's better instead of feeling like we should know exactly where we are, 
as therapists, maybe there's something more improvisational about it. In us trying to figure out what kind of music they're playing, what's their main melody or theme, and what are some harmonic changes that we can work on together, which I think is actually true to life. I think if you think about yourself throughout the day, your mood, your feelings, your thoughts are changing all of the time. And I think it's just a much more open, um, exciting kind of um, creative way of looking at how we function. And so, yeah, you know how you said I I bring in different things from music, um, but I also think it's a lot like story. I think good novels or good poems proceed where we discover and get to know new facets of the character or have the turn in a poem where some new epiphany or realization hits. Or even a good actor shows you different dimensions so you start to have sympathy for the villain or start to see unlikable qualities about, likable qualities about the hero. So this idea of allowing the complexity to be there and not be a problem, I think is what improvisation is. But I think many of us, like you said, feel like we're just winging it, which feels like we're just trying to keep up. And I wanted to normalize that we are winging it, but when we get to know more about ourselves and our clients and our patients, that we can figure out how to improvise and collaborate more interestingly together. We can make more interesting music together. Yeah, that's a really great point. And especially, you know, for trainee therapists, because there's so much to learn and so much to take in at the beginning, I feel like there's also this process going on in the therapist's head about how do I contain all the information that I've learned and the techniques that I've learned, but also apply them in this very artful way that resonates and connects with the client too. And a lot of this um, hinges, and you speak in the book about this as well, hinges on finding therapeutic voice. And you talk about how there's a distinction um, in the components of the therapeutic voice. One is the therapeutic presence and the other is therapeutic authority. I was wondering if you could speak to us a bit more about what these two components are and why it's so important for a balance to be struck between them. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting thing that I think it's really organic or natural to who we are as human beings, which is we're built to really listen and take in and receive um, from others. And then we're also really beautifully built to express and zero in. And a lot of the times I've had clients say they've gone to previous therapists and they said, oh, they were so great. They really listened to me. I felt really understood. I feel like they really got me but I didn't know what to do about my challenges, but I felt like they really cared. And then like, but then I went to this other therapist and this therapist was so good. They knew exactly what I could do, what technique I could use to feel better. But sometimes it didn't really seem that they listened. And so the challenge of being human, as well as the challenge of being an effective therapist is to constantly toggle back and forth between listening really deeply and openly and broadly, but then being able to zero in and express and delineate something really sharply. And the combination of listening and then coming back, it's a lot like a musician, like there's a great picture of John Coltrane and he looks like he's meditating and he's listening to Miles Davis play the trumpet on Kind of Blue. And you would think he was in such reverie because 
you know, he's he looks like he's in another space, but he's so deeply listening because he's getting ready then to play in response. And I think there's something of therapists that we we tend to go either or, or we tend to also have parts of ourselves that are more developed. Like some people are more developed in what I call presence, to give you the definition, is the sense of openness, receptivity, sort of that Rogerian, unconditional, positive regard that allows somebody to feel safe and comfortable to talk about anything and everything, even the things that we're not supposed to talk about, even the things that we don't particularly love about ourselves or our relationships. It's also the the presence is allowing new possibilities to come because you talk about what you're not supposed to talk about with total love. And I consider that sort of like the child's mind or beginner's mind, where you can have new new weird ideas. Like I love it when a client says, I know this is going to sound really stupid or really crazy. Like that's when you know you've really hit a therapeutic presence where someone feels safe. And then therapeutic authority, on the other hand, is like the yang to the yin of therapeutic presence, which is the sense of, okay, now I'm going to sharply delineate and discern what it is that you said and play it back to you and and see if you can see, I see this pattern in your relationships or I see this particular theme or here's a new idea. And it's an invitation to play back with something and to synthesize something. And that comes more from the traditional kind of expert's mind, you know, like when we feel like we should have authority and know what we're doing. But it's authoritative enough to give someone to say, oh, okay, you mean I can do something with that? That's interesting. And then the person, you, what you're trying to do is help a person be able to develop receptivity and presence for themselves and also authority at the same time. And together, I think those are like form a sort of depth perception psychologically. It's almost like our two eyes create depth perception and, and these two features cause the depth perception that is a voice. And when you have a good artist, whether it's a good musician or a good actor or a good writer, they, you can tell that they're receptive, but they also have something to say, but they also leave some space for the creative third to happen. And creativity often happens in that space, like Winnicott talked about it at the interface of reality and imagination. And it's both and. You don't have to choose one or the other. So there's a dreamlike quality to therapeutic presence, and there's a much more logical, linear quality to therapeutic authority. Yeah, thank you for explaining that and elaborating on that a bit more. And one analogy, and, and there are so many analogies and metaphors in this oh, book. Oh, yeah, I love I them, as you can tell. What, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what makes this book so human, and it's not a technical manual. You describe it even in the introduction as an untextbook, which I thought was really cool. But one analogy for presence and authority that really stood out to me was you compared these two elements as like playing notes in music where the um, therapeutic authority is getting like the proper read on the situation, like the vertical playing of the note, um, while the uh, presence is more like the horizontal forward motion of the music and represents the momentum and the movement towards a new experience. So um, I just wanted to say like that analogy really stood out to me while reading this book and I thought was a really clever illustration of 
how presence and authority are distinct, but also are so tied together because you need both of them to to continue forward. Right. And also you're right, because for a musician, the science is, you can't disentangle the science from the art, right? And and also I think, you know, in a lot of ways as, as therapists, we're engineers in a way. We're looking at how the architecture of, of the psyche is crafted. But then we're also like musicians or writers trying to figure out how do we tell the story and, and how do we help our clients tell the story more fully. And so, you know, part of it is helping them see what they're working with and what are different parts that they might not incorporate into the fuller music or the fuller story. And then how can they do that? So it's, it's, it's so interesting that it's as heavily scientific as it is artistic. There's no separation between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you talk about, too, how a key part of therapeutic presence is also responsiveness and how responsiveness can be seen as the verb form or like the motion form of presence. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on on that component as well. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I think sometimes we, all of us, whether we're therapists or even in our everyday life, we think of things in a much more static sense right? Like it's this and that. It's like, you know, somebody says or feels something and there's a response, but it's much more dynamic. It's much more ever-changing. And responsiveness is knowing not only what's helpful to say, but in the right way at the right time and making an adjustment to see how did that land and how do I respond now back and what other dimension. And so responsiveness is more of a verb because it's a playful thing. And it's a playful thing in which also we start to get delighted in finding new things together. And that's like, I loved like when you started the interview, for example, like you started me on this way of thinking about art as something different. Like what makes art special is that it both speaks from inside, deep inside you, but it also connects to something so much bigger. And I think responsiveness the reason that art is so responsive is because it's trying to deeply connect with us, but then have us have a response back and have a continual dialogue. And so responsiveness as a verb, I think is it also, I think, you know, the perfectionistic critics in all of us, especially as early career therapists or trainees, like, Oh my God, like I miss that. How did I miss that? Well, it's because this is so fluid and the more we do it, the more that you trust that if you don't catch it just right here, you'll catch it there. And so responsiveness is a continual process. And that's why I think, you know, also when a client sometimes feels pressure of like, okay, I think we have to get through this today. But it's going to be even more interesting if we just go with it and find different ways of responding. And that actually allows us to deal with more depth, more complexity, more nuance. So I feel like there's something very liberating about thinking about responsiveness. And you know what else is really interesting from the research? So... They had done these studies on super shrinks. Like, it's like these mm-hmm. super shrinks are supposedly like 10 times more effective than their comparable peer therapists. And one of the reasons that they're so effective is because of this responsiveness. Because they treat each client, not only different, each individual client, but each client's mini shifts they treat as different in the moment. And so if, it was almost like if you could watch a graph of somebody and their response, you could see how much more sophisticated that line is in working with a client. And I think that's just really cool. 
Yeah, that is really cool. And I know you were saying just now that sometimes clients come in like wanting to get through a certain topic or a certain thing. And I think as early therapists, we can do that too sometimes where we get caught up in getting through a certain agenda or feeling like I have to get in all these points that I was thinking about. But um, as we were just talking about, that doesn't have to be the case. And so much more meaning can come out of being in the moment, being responsive, and really being attuned to what is being shared in the room. And before that, you had also been saying how within art, there's also a science to it and it can be quite scientific and methodical in that way and something that you also draw upon in the book is you talk about um, you incorporate as you mentioned earlier like interpersonal neurobiology and how our neural wiring in this way can help in these therapeutic pursuits and you even subtitled a chapter neuroscience makes artists out of us so this is clearly something that is quite important towards your book and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how the left versus right brains um, which you discuss quite a bit shape presence and authority in therapy yeah, it's so interesting because, uh, you know, we're built in a really interesting, complicated way. Uh, I had an English teacher in high school, and he used to say to us, folks, what literature shows us is that we're a square peg in a round hole. And the square peg is our logic, our analytical prowess, and the circle is our flowing, nonlinear emotion. And our opportunity and challenge is to figure out not just how to reconcile them, but how to have them figure out how to complement and collaborate together when at many times they're going to be contradicting each other and tugging at each other. And I think it's really kind of liberating to see that at the heart and center of all of us psychologically. And that rather than seeing it as a design flaw, that it's, it's really a design virtue. Um, but it's maddening. Um, because we do have these two sides, like you said, obviously it's more complex than just a right brain, left brain thing, but it's, it's, it's a way of saying that there's some specialized aspects of what the right brain centers do that are more dreamlike, more metaphor open, more nonlinear. In fact, the right brain sides look for novelty. So they, the, the left brain hates novelty. (laughs) In fact, it is so not interested in novelty that it'll try to deny that there is novelty. And so you have this very conservative, logical left brain side, which is also brilliant. It's like what makes us humans also so great in lots of ways. But feeling and feeling on that poetic dreamlike level is also what makes us so, so sublime. And so I think one of the things is understanding about how these things come into play and how they're always sort of wrestling together. And sometimes they're helping each other, sometimes they're wrestling, and understanding how that works is really important. Another cool metaphor that I think you see in the book, too, is that so many of us get confused, so many of our clients especially get confused with, I thought I was just this one self. Like, why aren't I just showing up and being in that space? But we actually have these many different sides of self that are constantly going back and forth, and it's more like polyphony in music. If you listen to a Bach fugue, there's one voice and then there's another that enters and another. And a fugue is, it sounds like there's almost a certain kind of order, organized chaos. 
And the psyche is built in a polyphonic way. We're neurologically built in a polyphonic way, and yet we have to learn how to express ourselves in these virtuosic ways. And, and it's really interesting because, again, that's a contradiction. You have the one and the many complementing but also contradicting each other. And so that's why when most people come into our, our, our therapy and say, ah, I don't understand why I'm so, you know, why I have anxiety or why I have depression, it's often because there's conflicts between different sides. And there's good reasons for those conflicts if we look closer. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and that's another great analogy you draw in the book too, like this idea of polyphonic voices, or if we're thinking about in musical terms, if listeners aren't familiar, that refers to two or more like simultaneous lines of melodies um, that are independent as opposed to there being a single dominant emerging voice. And you talked about how there are these different lines, these different inner voices. So how can we as therapists make sure that we're able to attend to all these different voices and make sure that this um, multiplicity, which you also refer to it as in the book, doesn't go unnoticed? Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting because for the, people are more familiar with it through drama and, and in movies. I use a lot of movie examples because you'll find characters talking to each other and one side of themselves has come up like where like there's this great scene in La La Land, this movie about these two artists. There's a, an actress and a jazz pianist. And the jazz pianist comes and surprises her. And at first, they're just so elated to see each other. But soon enough, they're talking. And he's asking her, why don't you come with me? I'm playing out in Nebraska or wherever he's playing. And she's like, but I have a show. And all of a sudden, she gets bothered and frustrated and feels like he doesn't understand her. And then soon, she gets edgy. And then soon he gets frustrated. Why doesn't she love me as much? And so you see all these micro shifts in each of their characters. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this polyphony. There are so many different sides of self that change quickly. And often we do feel as therapists that we're winging it, trying to figure out which side is coming up and why. Right? So I don't remember even what the question was about... um, you had mentioned <laughs> there, there was something about like, how do you bring those things together? How are you sensitive to those things and how they work? I think one, one big piece is recognizing it's the rule rather than the exception. That in other words, this capacity to change so much is quite normal. In fact, I like to use the analogy of a car. A car, we don't realize it, but because most of us drive automatic cars, but it's shifting gears all the time without us recognizing it. 
But if you had to drive a manual or a stick, you'd realize that you had to you have to engage it and move from one to the other. It doesn't just happen. And most of us don't realize that we have different gears, different self-states that are constantly moving from one to the other, often until something goes wrong and something is bothering us or something is, dis- is unsatisfying to a side, right? And often that's why people come to therapy itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you also break down multiplicity in the book, these different aspects of the self into these three different facets, which you call uh, not me, bad me, and good me. And I was wondering if you could share a bit more about how these three aspects play off of each other, maybe how they can be reconciled and what it means to have these three different sides. Yeah, so I'll give credit to relational psychoanalysts Donnell Stern and Phil Bromberg. I think it was Donnell Stern who came up with these terms, which are really brilliant, which is, and I like to think of it, if we have a table set before us of all our different selves, good me are the sides we're most proud of. Like, oh, I'm hardworking. I'm generous. I'm smart. Like, whatever you have come to see as something that I love about myself, And bad me is like, oh, sometimes I'm not so pleased that sometimes I tend to procrastinate a lot or sometimes I can get petty or passive aggressive or whatever it is, right? And then there's not me. Not me is I can't even talk about that me because that me is somebody who is not even allowed at the table, who is so thoroughly unmet as a child or humiliated or shamed that I can't speak of that. So, for example, if you grew up in a house, a traumatic house where that you had parents, let's say, who, let's say they survived something really traumatic, like let's say they came from a, a, a background where they experienced civil war, or genocide, and or something really horrific in their story, maybe as immigrants, and they needed to put away certain kinds of vulnerability or sadness. And maybe they made it imp- almost impossible to talk about sadness because that brought up their trauma. Well, then the child learns that that's not something that I can go to. And so it gets pushed away as if it's not there. But while it doesn't get talked about, it tends to creep up in relational patterns that often come out in the therapy and in relationships. And so our goal is to help these different sides get more airtime, get more airtime and become witnessed and to be able to tell their story more fully, more fully. So I think that's a big, big part of what not me, good me, bad me is. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So it seems like not me is something that's not even part of either the bad me or the good me, but something that altogether has been hidden and therapy can be a space for that to, like you said, be heard or get a bit more airtime and is something that's part of this very complex multiplicity that we all have within us too. Yeah. And the not me, as you're suggesting is something that has often come because of some kind of trauma, whether it's trauma with a capital T or accumulated little traumas. Um, That means that we have to dissociate or cut off from it. And of course, if we're dissociating from sides, we're not able to use them in the creative mix. And so I see all of these parts of ourselves as things that help us become more psychologically creative. They allow us to have more range. They allow us to have more inner collaborators to make more interesting music, to make more interesting, rich, three-dimensional stories. 
And so to the extent that not me takes those away, that you lose dimension in the story. And that also comes out in relationships. Yeah. And returning to this idea of the therapeutic voice in helping us keep all those dimensions in play and notice all the aspects of all those parts of ourselves. You also talk about in the book how it's key, and we were talking about this earlier too, to strike a balance between presence and authority. And you also provide a little quiz in the book too, to help identify whether we lean more one way or the other, more towards presence or authority. So if through that quiz or through other means, a trainee therapist finds they do lean more towards one or the other, what are some ways that they can learn how to best balance between the two? Yeah, it's so funny. So I'll share myself, my own story. As a beginning therapist, I felt much more comfortable with presence, listening, taking in warmly, encouraging, you know, staying with this. And I, I was sometimes worried about intruding too much upon somebody's process, right? And maybe being like too interfering, right? And so one of the things was developing and having supervisors reflect that I also could trust my instincts and share, and it wasn't necessarily taken away by exercising some of that therapeutic authority, and that it could actually be something that is connecting and enhancing and expansive. And actually what you're moving towards is more mutuality, right? So a person who is used to presence sometimes doesn't want to kind of take up too much space they sometimes want to make sure that they're like the perfect listener and they're like the neutral Switzerland, right? Like everything is fine. <laughs> but there's also the other side of, of learning to take a position and have it be limited and still find that you're going to be able to work that through even if you miss it. Also, it's, it's helpful to know that it's okay to be wrong. It's also okay to be a rupture because with something so dynamic, there's and it's inevitable that there's going to be a rupture, but it's also how it can be not only worked through, but made interesting together, right? It's like one of the funny jokes about like good comedians is some of the best comedians flub their jokes and part of the jokes becomes the flub. And people with therapeutic presence issues want to be perfect in, in, in getting that all, but it's okay to flub it. Now, people on the other side, let's say someone who really leans heavy towards authority, maybe is very interested and quick to size things up and give homework and work on interventions, but they want to get to the solution fast, you know, and it's cool because that means that they really want to give and they really want to help. But sometimes it's challenging for them to more steep in feelings a little bit more like steeping tea a bit and allowing yourself to stay in what you don't fully know yet. And allowing you to see other dimensions and allowing yourself to dream more. So it's, it's, it's important for those kinds of therapists to trust in what surrender can bring. That surrender doesn't necessarily mean giving up. It actually means opening up to something that you didn't realize could be there. So it's a letting go. And those with the therapeutic presence have to trust that they can make a move and take a stand and trust that that's going to that's going to be okay. They're going to be okay. They have the right to own some of that authority. I think that's yeah, a really great way of putting it and of demonstrating what someone who might lean more towards one or the other uh, might look like. So thanks for sharing your own early experiences um, as well about that. 
Yeah, and one other thing yeah, that I would and... just, say, just say about it too is that it's it's a lot like handedness. We'll have one that's more dominant usually, but you'll it's it's really cool to track your own progress as a therapist, and also great for super supervisors to track that progress and to notice how you're becoming more integrated as you bring these things together. Yeah, and I feel like that almost leans into the idea of practicing, right, which is something that Mm -hmm. is, you know, therapy as a practice, but also within all these arts or like artistic fields that you mentioned, um, even if it's drama or music or like comedy or even writers who have to practice writing, um, that that's something that comes with time and experience too, and, and being able to track your own progress through that. And you start to develop your own sense of what your voice is. It's like a good singer or a good writer or a good actor. Like they determine what's the material that speaks to them most. Like what's in my range? Like what's a good song for my voice? Or what's a, a sort of style of writing that really speaks to me? But also how I can experiment with new things. So sometimes you'll have a rock star who experiments with country to get to know what it's like. And they'll experiment with classical and other things. But eventually the signature, the voice, is getting that distinctive place that's you. So even if they're doing it, you're working with different genres. And the reason why it's helpful to work with different genres Mm -hmm. is because people sometimes will prefer a little bit of this or a little bit of that. But you still got to do it from an authentic center. And that's what being an artist is, I think, is, is, is you can play a variety of different things, but it's always coming from a center that is from you. And that's the beauty of therapy, that we're using ourselves as the instrument. So it really works best when we are authentically us. Right. And that also makes me think of how there's not really like an explicit goal to work towards. Like we're not all trying to be this version of a therapist, sort of like the super shrinks you mentioned earlier, each also had their individuality. And some of those early studies about super shrinks and about therapist effects also point towards how there is something almost unidentifiable about what made those super shrinks, you know, nicknamed that there was something about them specifically and how they developed um, that made them unique and, and stand out in that way. Yeah, like you would never say, oh my gosh, Emily Dickinson, why didn't she write more like F. Scott Fitzgerald? And wait, Mm. why doesn't Brahms sound more like Mozart, right? Now, you can see the influences in Brahms of, let's say, Beethoven or Mozart, but you always know that it's Brahms. And you always know that it's Mozart. And even in Mozart, you can hear Haydn. And so you want to take your influences, and that's what I mean. Also, the exciting part about being an early career clinician and a trainee is, yes, try out like different theoretical orientations. Try out what it's like to take on a style of a supervisor you admire or a master clinician that you see. And then allow yourself to become yours so that when a, a patient, a client is with you, they feel like, wow, you're, this is the music that you're playing with me and this is ours. Mm-hmm. And something that's totally special to, to totally that special. space and that moment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just now you were bringing up, um, we've mentioned supervisors here and there, and um, you wrote this book, not just for training therapists, but also for clinical supervisors. And I'm 
working under the assumption that most people who are listening to us right now are within our field of therapy and do have a sense and are familiar with the supervisory model and what that means. But for those who aren't, I was wondering if you could very briefly describe what supervision is and also in relation to therapeutic improvisation, what role supervisory support plays in the development of that? I I think a good analogy is sort of like on that show, The Voice, that supervisors are listening to our supervisees and seeing what are their areas that they're really shine in. What, what kind of styles do they like to play? What styles are they good at? But also how can we broaden areas? Sometimes, like you said, working on more authority or more presence, but still trying to respect that we want to kind of help you articulate your voice at the same time. And, and, and so I think it's really important. It's a sort of, it's, it's a really interesting mentoring process. Sometimes it's even finding a person's special gifts, right? You know, like, wow, like you do such an amazing job of really summarizing and synthesizing your client's material, or you do such a good job finding subtleties of feeling, or you do so job on seeing discrepancies in the way a person is thinking about things. And I, one of the biggest things that I think supervisors can do is like, first of all, really see all the good raw material and then also see how we can help like almost like a good conductor. Like I want a little more from this section because I want to kind of round out the sound of what's possible and, and just like a good novelist, I, I, you're really good at dialogue, but I want you to get good at description. And I want you to really expand the kind of dramatic stakes of this scene. And so everything is about trying to kind of encourage and, and also help them see these different tools can help them put these pieces together in a way that's organic to themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really great description, especially that conductor analogy. I could see for those who can't see, <laughs> you're moving your hands yes. as you were describing that. So that was really great visual as well. Um, like yeah, I want more, so of, the, I want more of the trumpet section, right? I want more yes. of the percussion section. Yeah. I hear mm-hmm. the violins. I want more woodwinds, like more. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. like being in the, in, the, in the production studio with Quincy Jones. Like I want, like as a supervisor, I want you to be kind of giving feedback to help them do a great job mixing what their material is mm-hmm. and have all the levels mm-hmm. be like, Oh, isn't that a great, isn't that a great version? You know? Mm-hmm. Right. And like we were talking about just now, not trying to shape a therapist into a certain style or to say things a certain way, but to help them find their own voice within that and their own style within that. And sometimes that's experimenting outside of what they're used to or comfortable with, but all in the service of seeing what did you learn from that that might help you that something might take in into what is more you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, like I said earlier, I I really enjoyed reading your book and and how it merges therapy and art and – getting to just read this felt really human to me because often, you know, like I was saying earlier too, as trainee therapists, we have so much to learn. There's so much information that we're getting bombarded with. So just remembering that there's a really creative side, a really human side to therapy is really helpful as well. And so for me, I think a really big message that I took from this book personally is this idea of therapy being a give and take. So that could be between both 
the therapist and the client, but also as we spoke about presence and authority and also like artistry and technique, like how there's this expressive side, but you also have to have the technical side as well. And also preparation and spontaneity too. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was the message I took away from it. But I was wondering, what are you most hoping that trainee therapists will be able to take from, from your book and what you've written and shared? I love how you put it together. That's a really, that's really lovely to see that that came through because that's, that's precisely what I was hoping for. I also hope, hope to see that there's such um, a joy and delight in this profession that I consider, you know, maddeningly wonderful. It's challenging. It can be taxing, but it's so like heartbreakingly beautiful and poignant because it also allows us to elevate constantly and continue to get more rich in our own dimension and to help create art with these others and make the story of life artistic. And so another like sort of call to action that I have to young therapists, veteran therapists, all of us is to say, look at what a beautiful art we have here. Look at what a beautiful craft that we have and let's celebrate it in its own right. And, and let's appreciate the richness and depth and beauty of it. And I think, you know, it's so funny. We had World Mental Health Day the other day and I thought it's like interesting. It's like, it's so good that we have not only destigmatized things with mental health and mental illness, but we are opening to so many new ways of creating more inclusivity And at the same time, what I'd like people to see is that we are neurologically, psychologically built to be these extraordinary creatures and and these artistic creatures that, and I think it would be great if we can expand our view of mental health to be this much more dynamic, artistic, um, wonderful thing. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for for sharing that main message. And I totally agree with that as well. Just this dynamic nature of therapy and and wanting to share that with people. And I have a final question for you here, but uh, I'm very interested to know what you are working on now or next. Ah, yes. So interestingly enough, I am working on a book project with a an educator and improv comedy guy who we want to talk about what it's like to be the improvisational parent. Cause just as therapists are improvising okay. and feel like they're winging it, we think that being a parent is like that too. And so we want to talk about what we've learned as educators, as therapists, as, you know, as dads about, the improvisation of being a parent. And so we hope that it will be something that complements this, that if good therapists are doing this, good parents should be doing this as well. And they are. I think so many wonderful parents are improvising this wonderfully dynamic, complex way. Oh, that's really cool to hear about. And I wish you all the best on that project moving forward. And I look forward to to seeing that uh, in the future. And uh, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this and you are a trainee therapist or a clinical supervisor 
with a love for the arts, even if you're not really familiar with them. There are so many, like I mentioned, metaphors, references. There's something for everyone in this book. So this would be a great book um, for everyone within the field of therapy. And actually, to conclude our interview, I want to leave off with a quote from one of your clients that you included in the book, one that really stood out to me. And I was reading your um Schillinger Memorial Prize essay earlier and saw that it was included there too. So I was like, I was on to something. This is a really <laughs> um, important, important piece um, of this book. But she said to you, how is it that we always discover new things when we are talking together? And your response was, it's like we have this great melody that we keep reharmonizing. So I've certainly felt that today through our conversation. So I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me and to all of our listeners about your book. Um, so thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Julie. It was a pleasure. <laughs>